from the Alexa in your kitchen to the smart TV in the bedroom. You've got smart devices peppered all over the house. So wouldn't it make sense to place the best tech in every part of your home? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. With advanced technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing, it offers personalized setting, from ambient colored lighting and built-in audio speaker system to a heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We are continuing and, in fact, ending our uh, next four years series here uh, with a, a return guest, Charlotte Slayman from Public Knowledge. Uh, but she has been promoted since last time, is now Director of Competition Policy there, um, which is excellent. And we were going to talk about competition policy. And specifically, I mean, well, this is very the weeds. Politics seems more insane than ever. And, you know, Biden is trying to get his agenda going, but in a super literal sense, like he is just going to be inheriting some ongoing antitrust litigation that I think it's it's important for people to understand this is one of these things that is far from the zoo of politics, but actually quite important. Yes. So uh, we're going to talk first about this is a case against Google that was initiated by, I guess, the Justice Department and some states. What What's the deal? That's right. So there's actually three different um, antitrust cases against Google from various enforcers. Um, one is from the Department of Justice, and then there's one from a group of states that's led by Colorado and New York. And then there's another case from a group of states led by Texas. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot. So is it, is it like, is that like the Democratic attorneys general are doing one case and the Republicans are doing the other? Is that? So the case that's led by Colorado and New York um, is bipartisan. There are Democrats and Republicans, um, but I do think the Texas case is only Republican state attorneys general. Wow. Okay. So that is, that is complicated. And, yeah. and they're all about separate issues. Kind of. The the Colorado and New York case is similar to the DOJ case, um, but a little different, whereas the Texas case is very different. It's at, it's about a whole different market. Okay. So what's what's the DOJ doing? Because uh, yes, I mean, Google is like, um, it's a thing, like you, you can Google it, uh, but this is also a big sprawling conglomerate. Um, yes. So I can imagine there's a lot you might or might not want to sue Google about. Exactly. There is a lot. Um, So the DOJ case actually does focus on Google search, um, the sort of most obvious Google product. Um, And their concern is that the way that Google became so powerful was in part, not just because it was a great product, but really because they had a series of exclusive default contracts and that they used their powerful position in other industries to um, make Google search the default 
across many different products and that that's a big part of how they were able to get this huge market position they have today. And these are kind of tied together, right? Because if you, like, if you use Google, like it really is a great product, but part of how it works, right? It's not, it's not like somebody like makes a chair in a factory. Um, The data from Google's users is an input to the product. Exactly. Acquiring customers helps them refine the product, which helps them retain customers. So exactly how that loop works um, is very important to understanding whether like a rival, because it's like you could be a really smart computer programmer or or whatever, but like you can't compete with, with that volume of inputs. Yes. I mean, part of it is that they have really smart computer programmers. Like to some extent, it's like making a really good chair. But yes, the the data is hugely important. And there's value to Google in having so much more data from having so many more users. There's also value to Google in preventing competitors or a potential competitor from getting that data so that competitors can't make a product that is really um, effective enough to compete. And so, and so what kind of deals are we talking about? This is like, if I fire up my iPhone, if I, if I punch something in like that, that's a Google search. Yes. So Google did have an agreement with Apple uh, to be the default search provider on iPhones. That uh, was an incredibly expensive agreement. Apparently they've been paying um, eight to $12 billion a year for that, you know, prime position on the iPhone. The lawsuit doesn't tell us exactly. I think the, the detailed information is redacted, but they said it's it's in that, um, you know, public reporting indicates it's in that range. And it's not just that, right? Um, the Chrome browser is owned by Google and the Android operating system is owned by Google. So if you're thinking about mobile, which has become more and more of the market over time, more and more searches are happening on mobile as opposed to on your desktop or on your laptop, all the mobile phones are either iPhones or Android phones. Um, the only operating system that is available to a smartphone manufacturer is Android, or they could make their own. And it's incredibly uh, difficult to make your own smartphone operating system. So that's not a realistic option. And by locking down the iPhone and all of the Android phones to have Google be the default search engine, um, that's very powerful. Right. And so it, it gives them this kind of dominant position. But is that, I mean, what's the sort of legal case there, right? Because I mean, companies pay, um, I don't actually know if everybody knows this, but like companies pay for favorable placement on the shelves in in retail stores all the time. If you go, I mean, uh, like big chain bookstores aren't so much of a thing anymore, but it, but it used to be that it was like, like what table you were on, that was all arranged between the publishers and and the retailers, uh, you know, because defaults are are valuable. And so people pay, but is that is that illegal? So I think what's important is the distinction of market power. Um, so one book at a bookstore having an agreement, you know, um, there used to be competition in bookstores. <laughs> I'm interested now in whether that's true, but these are not competitive markets. And so the, the choices that one company makes, there isn't a competitive valve to, to do something else. If you don't like the way that they're doing it, you're really stuck because of the market power. I guess what's the remedy for this, right? Because so you sell Google, okay, you're not allowed to pay Apple $10 billion a year to to, to get this kind of placement. I, I almost feel like Google might say, 
Well, that's fine. fine. Yes. Because if you're Apple's point of view, right? So it's like right now, well, the default position is valuable. So they extract this $10 billion or whatever it is from Google. Uh, But if nobody was allowed to pay Apple for the default, like, aren't they still just going to default to Google? Right. So I think you're, you're right that the remedy is really hard. And simply undoing the contracts is not going to be sufficient. What was important about this conduct is largely what happened in the past. Um, It's how Google was able to prevent Bing from becoming a successful competitor, prevent other uh, companies from becoming successful competitors. And so just getting rid of the contracts now does not actually remedy the situation. They do talk a little bit in the DOJ complaint about how the payment to Apple is in some ways, sharing of monopoly rents. It's it's not just that they're paying for value. And so it may be that if Apple wasn't getting paid to support this monopoly, that they might, you know, be more interested to invest in a competitor or invest in their own competitor. Uh, but yes, I think we're going to need to do a lot more than just undo the contracts. Because it's, it's like a weird situation where in the in the mobile OS market, Apple and Google are the only two, like they they compete and they're the only two competitors, but then Apple doesn't have a search offering at all. So one way to think of it is like, okay, Google wants Apple to collude in the smartphone market, but there's no real upside to Apple for doing that. So they give them them. money, right? Maybe. So the Colorado uh, and New York case gets into a little bit more of the sort of forward thinking, um, how how could this look different? You know, one theory is Apple has Siri and voice assistants could be a next layer up from search engines. So they could be sourcing from multiple search engines. And we don't really see that happening. But maybe if Apple had a greater incentive to make their voice assistant more independent, um, that would be an opportunity for other search engines to come in and help serve the types of searches that Google isn't great at. Right. I mean, so because we have in the in the kind of voice assistant market, right, we have like three big players, basically. Yeah. And and like Siri's no good. <laughs> I, I have some um, Alexa stuff in my house and I have an iPhone and like the Alexa clearly works better. Um, mm. But also like using the thing that's on your phone is sometimes convenient, right? I mean, I remember I, I was more of a business reporter back in the in the heyday of Bing and it was failing. And I remember thinking it was like very convenient for the world that Microsoft was pouring all this money into this thing that didn't seem to have great prospects. But I feel like that's that just feels to me like, like the problem here, right? That it's like, if you could order Apple to say, well, you need to build your own search engine. Like you got to go take on Google. Like that would be great. Uh, <laughs> can, but like, can, can we make anybody want to compete no. in this market? No. Um, so uh, we want to set up the competitive situation where it will make business sense for companies to compete. And I mean, one thing that search has going for it as a place that ought to be competitive is it's incredibly lucrative. There's a huge incentive if there was a realistic path to, you know, building a thriving business, you could make a lot of money. So uh, I think if we could create a, a real competitive environment 
there would be an incentive for companies to come in and compete. And so that's the other question. You know, I mean, always, I think, in a in an antitrust case, it's like, like, who is suffering from this lack of competition? Like, I don't hear from people like big complaints about the quality of their mobile web search. Uh, because like, it is true that like, like you can switch the default if you, if you want to, nobody so, does. Cause like Google works fine and it's free. So I've been listening for complaints and I agree with you. There are not a lot of them, but every once in a while you do see complaints about the quality of Google search and it's like certain types of searches. Um, so one I saw, I think it was Sarah Jiang on Twitter maybe like a year ago, because I pay close attention to this stuff. And she was like, I'm looking for, um, you know, vegan recipes on Google. And so many of them are awful. <laughs> and I think Google may not be a good setup for recipe search, because the website that rises to the top on Google is the one that has the most clicks, the most things linking to it, and people, you know, don't immediately click away from the website once they go through to it. That's not what tells you whether a recipe is good, right? There could be an opportunity for a recipe search engine that actually has some indicators of quality. And that would be really useful for people looking for recipes online. Sometimes it gets more serious, like health information. Um, so, you know, I heard a story from someone who said, my mom got sick and I was trying to research so that I could have an informed conversation with her doctor and Google was not very useful for that. You know, it's not surfacing the most reliable medical information. I think they've done some work to try to improve that since then because of, um, how serious that is, but there are all types of searches, um, where you really might benefit from an alternative. I will also say as a, as a content person, something that happens is that people don't always know when something is Google's fault. Um, so like a lot of people, I, I have not heard a lot of complaints about the quality of Google's recipe searching. But I have <laughs> heard a lot of complaints about the fact that recipe websites preface everything oh, like a little so anecdote. Yes. And I don't think people understand that that's a search engine optimization technique that Google will penalize you if you just post a bare ingredient list and instruction set. I did not know that. So we see this um, when I used to work at, at Vox, right? There were certain kinds of content formats that we discovered we couldn't do. That if you just post a bulleted list, like it won't perform in search. You have to hmm. put several hundred words of, of copy on top of it. And so that's why all recipe websites have that like structural feature, uh, but because it's opaque and also nobody tells you, right? Because like part of running a website is you have to stand by your product, right? So nobody is ever going to say. In their little recipe intro. Yeah, hey, like readers, this is I a pointless is SEO game, right? <laughs> so, so, so I mean, it becomes doubly confusing because first they sort of coerce the websites into adopting a particular content format. And then the websites don't want to admit to the readers that that's what's going on. They want to say like, oh, we think these anecdotes are amazing. So people don't know, right? Anyway, so like Google has reasons for having the search work this way. Yes. But as you were saying, right, a specialized recipe search has different considerations, right? Both, as you were saying, in terms of like recipe quality, but like People looking for articles to read, I think, do want them to have words. <laughs> and that's why Google 
does it that way to sort uh-huh. of winnow out scams. But people looking for recipes don't want words. They, like they want the recipe. Yeah. And I think it can also be much bigger than this, right? I mean, these are small examples that we can think of. Um, but I really liked in the Colorado and New York case, they, they call this sort of sector of the market information discovery. And I think because we only have had Google really and, and um, products that are pretty similar to Google in that space, We've sort of lost our imagination about what information discovery on the internet could look like. And if all of these smart engineers were not working for a company that really benefits from the status quo, but instead working for companies that were trying to disrupt Google's monopoly, we might have really cool and interesting information discovery tools. And we don't have that because Google may have been violating the law. Hmm. Okay, but so still so just just so so I can understand and everybody can understand. Um I guess like the part of antitrust that I'm most familiar with is is like merger review. Yeah, that's a lot simpler. <laughs> right. So so in that case, it's like a company wants to buy another company and the government says no, you can't do that, and then they don't do it. Yep. How, like how would this work? Right? Like if if a judge is like, you're right, Colorado, you know, or, or the Biden administration continues with this lawsuit and they win, like like what does that mean in a practical sense? Yeah. So the court has an opportunity to oppose remedies and the remedies ought to um, actually remedy the harm, right? So the result of the court case should not just be, okay, you can't do that bad behavior anymore. It should not just be a fine. Um, They're really supposed to try to figure out a way to fix the harm that happened. And it it can be really hard. It's really hard in a situation like this where this conduct uh, has been going on for a long time. It's a complicated industry. There are network effects and and other things that uh, I hesitate to say this because I, I don't want people to take this too far. But like there are some benefits to having it be somewhat consolidated. I hope we'll get to talk more about the limits of that. But it's just really difficult for a court to figure out how to remedy something like this. And, and they're going to try hard, um, but it's it's going to be complicated. So you probably shouldn't think of this as, as like a win-lose binary outcome. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. You know, the win-lose binary outcome would be they win the case and they get a ruling that what Google did was illegal. Um, but we as consumers might not win if they don't do a good job of remedying the harms. I mean, because there's been a lot of litigation in Europe about, I mean, about a lot of different stuff related to Google. But their remedies have not been very effective. Right. It's like the sheer quantity of litigation is a sign that it's not not actually working, right? That like every year or so, there's like some new fine. Yeah, I wouldn't say that the quantity of litigation indicates that it's not working because there's a ton of different conduct. Like they are addressing a lot of different issues. But I do agree that the remedies are not working. Right. You you would, I guess, in some sense, like to say, okay, we now have like a competitive market in search or information discovery or whatever you want to yes. call it. And then we can have actually less scrutiny on what you do. Yes, that, w- that would be the dream. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for regulators and, and uh, antitrust enforcers to know what the, what, what the best search engine ought to be, right? You and I don't know the answer. Um, right. I mean, that's the, that's the, I guess, the competition policy dream is that instead of having the regulators constantly over your shoulder, um, you have competition. And then you say yes. people can do what they what they want to try. Let's take a break. And then I want to ask about Texas. Great. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burrow's furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So yeah, so you as you mentioned, right, we have three different uh, cases with, with Google, two sort of similar ones, bipartisan attorney general case, uh, a case brought by the Trump administration handing over to, to the Biden administration, but then a third one that was brought by the state of Texas and mostly Republican AGs. And what are they, what are they on about here? Yeah. So this is about a different um, part of the Alphabet company. Um, it's about Google's uh, advertising technology tools. So Google has a powerful position in multiple pieces of the advertising technology stack, I guess. It's incredibly complicated, but <laughs> trying to simplify it, basically, they are representing advertisers and they're representing publishers, which is like the websites that we go to. And they also own the exchange where the advertisers and the publishers come together to do their auctions and figure out which ad's going to be shown on which website. And by having those three important competitive positions, they have a lot of opportunities to um, benefit themselves. And it sounds like they're doing that in a variety of ways. Mm. Um, so this is, I mean, I guess to, to contextualize this a little bit for people, right? In old-fashioned you know, print advertising, it's like you would call up a magazine's sales department and say, you know, I want to, I want to put a page in your June issue and, and there's some price and, and you go do yes. it. In the primitive days of the web, 
there was an effort to sell digital ads on the same basis. And and to an extent that happens. I mean, publishers do some uh, premium site-specific advertising. But a ton of the ad inventory is what they call programmatic. Um, And so as a publisher, you just kind of have these slots on your website that are filled with ads. And you have um, an ad exchange that you work with that determines what goes there. Uh, But then from the ad buyer's point of view, instead of targeting specific publications, they are essentially trying to target certain kinds of readers. So, So instead of being like, my inference is that a lot of men in the Philadelphia area are reading the sports section of the Inquirer, you can like go after people who you believe to be men who live in the Philadelphia area. Well, and of course, it's much more detailed than that, right? Right. Um, you have an age range, an income range, their recent interests. It, right. It's it's really intense. Right. I mean, as, as I think we've all noticed, right? It's like if you go search, if you're like searching for tables to buy, uh, you will be stalked around the internet by ads yes. for tables because they think you have this strong intent to purchase. And so Google, as you're saying, owns like many different pieces of this. And I mean, I guess that's good for them. <laughs> It's it's also incredibly lucrative. Yes, it's it's really good for them. I mean, this people in the media, you know, particularly like people who write on the internet, like this is it's really bad for us uh, because essentially it used to be super duper valuable to like have an audience of that was big or rich or whatever it was, right? An audience right. with purchasing power. Um, you had a lot of value as a journalism institution. And now thanks to this kind of digital disintermediation, it is really not that valuable. The value has migrated to the ownership of this, this ad technology. Um, so it's worth going into that a little bit more. So, you know, if you were the... Seattle Times, right? Like that's a way to reach the Seattle geography. And the sports page is certain people and the um, news page is certain other people. And so that sort of control over the audience was difficult to achieve in other ways. I do think it's important that there are a lot of other factors that have been making things really hard for the news lately. Um, so this is definitely a part of it, but I think just sort of migrating to the internet as a medium, um, regardless of targeted advertising was a, a tricky thing for many newspapers. I think there's an issue with private equity and, and the ownership of many news organizations trying to sort of make them run super efficiently I'm doing the air quotes. So there's a variety of problems, but yes, this is one of them. But here too, though, like what is the, what's the the meat of the the complaint here like who who would win from you know like a more competitive or more fair digital ad swapping yes. system so um the people who are being harmed um and so thus the the people that we're trying to um remedy those harms is advertisers publishers which is websites and news organizations and also users of course regular people in the world who are paying more for products that advertise on Google uh, because those advertisers are paying more and who are receiving lower quality content on the publishers um, because those publishers are receiving less money from Google. And how, how did this come to be like a Republican attorney general thing? Um, 
That's a great question. And of course, the internal processes of the state attorneys general are are not uh, public. So I, I don't know the answer. I think there is so much to do in the Google um, antitrust space that there was sort of a need to like parcel off different chunks to different groups of people. And so it's it's not crazy that there would be um, multiple state cases, a DOJ case that, that it just would take a few cases to to fully cover this. Um, so that could just be like a division of labor thing. It could be one yeah. way to think about it. Um, so what do you? I mean, you 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 do big big competition stuff. Like like what what do you think about this litigation? Like is it like is this like super promising and you know everybody should be really excited or is it? Because I I mean I was I was talking to. Um, uh, well, actually, he's he's my uncle, but he's a veteran antitrust economist. I remember this from our last conversation. So, I mean, he was saying like, uh, like these cases are really hard to win, uh, mon- monopolization cases, and it didn't seem that promising to him. Well, that that you were going to put a ton of work into it. It was going to take years, and it was going to end up with a kind of unsatisfactory settlement that probably leaves us more or less where we where we stood. Versus like is going to really make everybody feel happier about the industry. Yeah, uh, it's somewhere in between, right? Um, It's true that monopolization cases in general are hard to win, but that's like a huge problem. (laughs) We really need to work on that because monopolization is happening uh, all over the economy. And we need to figure out ways to bring monopolization cases and win them. We cannot just give up on monopolization. It's a hugely important priority for antitrust. So there are um, some efforts in Congress to make bringing monopolization cases easier. Senator Klobuchar is working specifically on um, self-preferencing. As you know, she had this great hearing about the issue of self-preferencing. That's one of the types of monopolization that we see a lot in big tech. So I think this is like a recognized problem. Um, a lot of people talked about it when the FTC had these, um, you know, antitrust for the 21st century hearings when uh, Chairman Simons first came in. Um, but yeah, it's something that we need to work on. One of the ways that we can work on it is bringing cases and um, trying to improve the law that way. But it's a super, that's a super slow method. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I should probably get you to explain like what, like what, what is a monopolization case? Yes, that's a good place to start. Yeah. So we talked about how a lot of antitrust is merger enforcement. Um, this is a, a completely different part of antitrust enforcement. Um, and these are the types of cases that I worked on at the FTC. Conduct. Uh, there are, are a variety of types of anti-competitive conduct that the antitrust laws are concerned about. Something that we hear a lot from folks who are new to antitrust is this company is a monopoly, so the government needs to go stop them. The law does not allow that, right? You have to have a monopoly plus some illegal conduct. And the conduct has to be of a certain category that is considered anti-competitive. Um, so it can't just be, you know, Facebook shared my data with Cambridge Analytica. That's an antitrust violation. You have to explain how it's connected to competition. That's the thing people need to need to take yes. away, right? That yes. to just be like, ah, I think this company has like a monopoly or even worse, like a small N of companies has like market power. 
Like, that's true. Yeah, and antitrust law doesn't care until they are acting unfairly. Right. That's the the difficulty, right? When you say it, the, the cases are hard to win, it's just not that, like, robust a toolkit to actually come in and, and sanction companies compared to what I think, um, like, takes that you read sometimes <laughs> seem to indicate that, like, if you just went in and were like, hey, stop doing that, that the companies would have to stop. Yeah, those are, it, there's always a, a risk that you would lose the case. And even if you win, the cases take a long time. And even after you've waited that long time and won the case, the remedy is hard. Right, right. Yeah, and the, and the remedy part is, you know, we, we were talking about this at the top, but like, obviously that's very important. Because um, unless your remedies are good, you know, you haven't achieved the the mission of safeguarding the public there. Exactly. Um, so, you know, let's, let's take a, a, another break here because I, I also want to ask about Facebook. Great. We all need an upgrade every once in a while. Whether it's that outdated car in your garage or that cell phone that you bought over three years ago, it's good to have the best technology around. And great news, because now you can have the most advanced technology in the privacy of your own home. The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. The smart toilet combines unmatched aesthetics with cutting-edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings that let you fine-tune every option to your exact preferences. From ambient-colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. Plus, the Numi 2.0 comes equipped with Power Saver Mode for energy efficiency and emergency flush for power outages, so you don't have to worry about wasted energy. Connecting you to an oasis of cleanliness and comfort, the Numi 2.0 can revolutionize your bathroom, making it more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so separate from these these Google cases, um, there's a case, um, is it FTC case? Yes. Uh, that's been brought against Facebook. And, and what's up with that? Yeah. So um, the FTC allegation is that Facebook had a, I think they call it buy or bury strategy, that whenever there was a competitor or potential competitor that looked like it might pose a competitive threat to Facebook, that they would either try to buy that company or use their very considerable power to um, make it really difficult for that company to compete fairly. Mm-hmm. So this one is is near and dear to to my heart because um, I, I remember years ago when Facebook bought Instagram, it was considered by a lot of people to be 
outlandish that you would spend a billion dollars on buying a photo sharing app that had no revenue and not that many users and didn't even um, exist on Android and stuff like that. I was working at Slate at the time. So I know I was in the minority because my job was to come up with like trolley takes. (laughs) Um, So I said, you know, I bet the way Facebook is looking at this is that they've got a really strong business And the biggest risk to them isn't that, well, people will stop using Facebook, but it's that some other new thing will come along and take people's attention. And, you know, Instagram's actually pretty promising in that regard, even if their revenue and all that other stuff isn't that clear. A lot of people like to use it. So paying a billion dollars to protect the long-term viability of Facebook against competition, you know, really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I was correct. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, kind of. It, that's, that's the Justice Department should have read my takes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible that part of the reason that Facebook paid so much for Instagram is not because they actually that that Instagram as a company had that valuation, but rather because it was particularly important to Facebook. It's like um, if you have Boardwalk, it's like worth a lot more to you to buy Park Place, that kind of thing, which is definitely uh, something that antitrust enforcers are interested in (laughs) makes it sound like you're trying to get a monopoly. The other thing that's important in the complaint is they have a lot of internal Facebook um, conversations by email that they're looking at. And it does seem like they were concerned about the transition to mobile. So just as you were saying, it's not so much that Instagram was maybe a direct competitor to Facebook at the time, but that Facebook saw that the next big place that they were going to need to compete was mobile and that they were not succeeding. But Instagram was great at mobile. So sometimes we hear in antitrust these arguments that like, why are you worrying about antitrust enforcement? The next big thing is coming. And, you know, just like Facebook took over from MySpace, like someone's going to take over from Facebook. Um, But it seems like that big inflection point might have been when mobile was overtaking desktops. That was the opportunity when Instagram would have overtaken Facebook. And Facebook saw that and prevented it uh, with a potentially illegal merger. Right. Well, and the the concern is that the the companies have read the same business books as the people offering that take. Because like in a traditional merger review, you'd say like, well, I sell microphones, you sell microphones. If we combine, how big a share of the microphone market is that going to be, right? Yeah. But then if, yeah, if what we're counting on in tech is that there's strong network effects, there won't be a lot of players in any given market, but the risk is disruption, right? As like mobile rises, things like that. So companies can, by buying relatively small companies, be safeguarding themselves from future competition. Exactly. So in antitrust, we call this competition for monopoly, um, as opposed to dynamic competition where you have six microphone manufacturers competing with each other all at once. The competitive threat to companies like Facebook, um, dominant digital platforms, but also other types of industries that have similar characteristics the competitive threat is these small guys who have a chance of really disrupting the monopoly and and becoming the new monopolist. And so it's so important for antitrust enforcers to take those small competitors seriously, because that is the major source of competitive threat. Um, And it doesn't look like competitive threat in other industries. So I think that's part of the reason that 
they probably missed that the first time around. Right. So, so I mean, one thing you could do here is to say, okay, in the future, we are going to be just incredibly skeptical about acquisitions by big digital companies in uh, industries with a lot of network effects, right? That, and they should do that. <laughs> uh, no, right. <laughs> this is the thing where the remedies are easy, right? Like, like merger review, like we, we know how to do it. Um, the government uh, usually wins those cases when they bring them. Yes, um, but uh, yes, yes, they do. Um, but I think uh, using win rates as a metric is tricky because um, the government is careful about what cases they bring. Fair enough. They like to say we have these great win rates. And a lot of times I use those win rates as a criticism because it's like, why aren't you bringing harder cases? <laughs> if, you, if you're winning 85% of your cases, like you're not having the correct priorities. Okay, right, right, right. That means you're not you're not taking on the the, the tough one. But yeah, yeah, well, I guess even so, right? You you need to convince the, the Supreme Court or some appellate courts, okay, no, like they're right. We need to be super skeptical of, of these mergers. But if you want to actually remedy like past Facebook mergers, like what what do you do? I mean, I'm not a big Facebook person, but it, it, they're clearly now succeeding yes. in a way that they weren't at the time. Right. So like how could you fix it? Yeah, so the FTC calls for um two potential remedies here. One is to um divest Instagram and WhatsApp, which means um break them off. And the other one is interoperability requirements. Um so I, I want to explain what that means. <laughs> So one of the concerns that we have in network effect industries, um, so network effects are, you know, you think about a social network, um, you want to be on a social network with a lot of people, um, maybe with businesses and institutions that you want to connect with. Um, everybody wants to be where the people are. So a social network that is big and has a lot of people has a huge competitive advantage over a small startup that doesn't have a lot of people or a lot of content. but Network effects can be to one company or they can be to an industry. Mm. So they've made it really easy for you to cross post from Facebook to Instagram and from Instagram to Facebook. And they've been talking about improving the chat functionality between them. So they, they are recognizing the benefits of interoperability. What we need is for Facebook to offer that same interoperability to competitors that they don't own. Ah, right. Um is this really unique to Facebook or do we see a lot of companies pursuing this sort of kind of, of strategy, at least potentially anti-competitive acquisitions and, and kind of thing? That's a good question. I think it's probably common, but companies are often better about hiding it <laughs> The documents that the FTC cites, um, you know, Facebook internal conversations, you know, Mark Zuckerberg says like Instagram was a competitive threat. And so I decided to buy them. It's just like oh, yeah. un unreal <laughs> levels of um, admission. Taking notes on a criminal conspiracy kind of problem. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that they have great lawyers who, who would tell them not to write those types of documents and other companies are getting that legal advice as well. So usually when you're trying to convince the government to let you merge, you'll say things like, 
we want to merge because it's going to be so efficient and great for consumers. And no, this company is not a competitive threat at all. They they do something different that would be valuable to our business. And right, like you're supposed to say, like here's this other company. They do something totally different. Exactly. But by combining our uh, office cafeteria functions, like we're going to make both things much more awesome. And you know, here we go. Right. Yes. And like you got to make sure that's what all your documents say. Yep. And that's what they usually do. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. So Facebook maybe 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 messed up there. <laughs> and so in in political terms, right? We you know we're seeing a, a change of administrations here. Um, do we anticipate any kind of change of direction in these cases? Because that does sometimes happen, right? Um, you know, uh, I, I think with the with the Microsoft case twenty years ago now with the Bush administration came in and they were sort of less enthusiastic about prosecuting it and it and it led to a maybe different settlement than you than you might have otherwise seen. Um, obviously we we don't know who's going to be FTC director or or anything like that, but um, I don't know, you're a you're a well-informed person. Is there- yeah, so um, something you can look at is the fact that the two democratic commissioners at the FTC supported this case against Facebook. Um, so even if we don't see one of them as the new chairman in the Biden administration, I think the new chairman will certainly be um, taking advice from them. I think that's a, a really good indication that the Biden administration will want to continue the case against Facebook. And I think the Biden administration will absolutely want to continue the case against Google at DOJ as well. The one potential change in direction that we could see is an expansion of that case, There are real concerns in the ad tech market as well. Um, We talked a little bit about the Texas case that focuses on the ad tech market. You know, DOJ could expand their case to include those types of concerns if they also thought that that was a good case. Mm -hmm. So so you think if there was a change, it would probably be in in the direction of of more. Yes, exactly. (sighs) I don't quite know how to put this. It's like, you know, if I've been watching Congress and politicians uh, sort of yelling about tech and competition, um, I feel like they're actually mostly not yelling about this stuff that we have just been talking about here. Um, People seem very worried about like whose posts get censored or not, rather than um, like ad tech or who has a default on on Apple's smartphone. Uh, Is that, are these like, two hermetically sealed worlds of complaint, or is there some intermixture there? So um, here's how I think about that. The antitrust cases are focused on particular anti-competitive conduct that Google and Facebook have engaged in. And if they are successful, they will endeavor to remedy that particular conduct. I think there are broader competition problems in this industry that will not be addressed by antitrust cases. And that's what Congress should be focused on. And some in Congress are focused on that. Um, so the House Antitrust Subcommittee, Chairman Cicilline, had a excellent, really detailed investigation of not just Google and Facebook, but also Amazon and Apple. Um, dominant digital platforms and all of the many competitive concerns that we see there. And they had a section of that report about remedies, um, where they talk about some of these options, interoperability, like I discussed, non-discrimination is another one that's really important to me. And so I think there is like 
hope <laughs> people are working on this and, and talking about it. Um, but you're right that a lot of the conversation in Congress right now is about content moderation concerns, um, the posts that are left up, the posts that are taken down, the, the efforts to label or change the algorithm and all of that. Um, but I actually think that these broader competition concerns can help address some of those problems. I don't think that the antitrust cases are going to have a huge impact on that. But if we have um, pro-competition regulations targeted at big tech, I think we can have um, some impact on on the content moderation discussions. Right. But I mean, so, but but that is like two leaps on the hopscotch board from, from the litigation that we're talking about. Yes, exactly. I, I just think like just for, for for people's understanding of this, right? Because I, yeah. I, I I have noticed, you know, there's a tendency, people will start like yelling about one thing and then, you, you know, you enter that conversation and they'll be like, ah, antitrust, right? Yes. It's all related, right? Like the conduct of Facebook and the government's regulation of that conduct do relate to one another, uh, but not, in this case, the content moderation conversation and the existing litigation are pretty far apart. I mean, it it sounds like, particularly in the in the Google case, right? Because we're really talking about having some kind of like whole alternative to web search as we understand it, rather than like another search engine. So i I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like this is a pretty detailed distinction between antitrust and competition policy. And I think sometimes when people say antitrust, what they really mean is competition policy. And so they might not, you know, when you're in these conversations on Twitter, someone might say, look at antitrust, Matt, and and they, you know, are making a mistake, you know, the antitrust laws are not going to probably solve that. But um, maybe it's just a pedantic difference in terminology, um, because pro-competition policies actually really can do something. Oh, that's a good one. I like it. So uh, how, how, how would you explain that distinction? Yeah. So, I mean, the antitrust laws are the Sherman and the Clayton Act. They address particular violations uh, across the economy. But in many important industries, we have other competition laws that are sector specific and focused on that industry and trying to actually promote competition there. Um, the antitrust laws are really just about maintaining competition. And I think big tech in particular is an area where there is necessarily going to be so much more of a problem than just what antitrust can address because of the network effects that we've talked about, because of the power of data and the sort of economies of scope and scale that the importance of data provides to these industries. So we really need to change the structure of the market not just remedy particular antitrust violations, but create broad interoperability requirements on not just Facebook, but on whoever comes next and on other companies in the space, especially powerful dominant platforms. So, I mean, so so that's to say like we have, there's like a lot of laws on the books other than the Sherman and Clayton acts. Um, and well, many of them address competition issues yes. in specific industries, but, but we don't have industry. a law like that for technology. Exactly. And so ultimately, if you're like interested in the question of competition in this sector, you may need to think the way um, broadcast television affiliates have this like incredibly detailed regulatory framework that 
uh, particularly in its heyday, was like incredibly relevant to how American society operated. And it was not just like generic Sherman Act competition law, right? It was like, I mean, I don't even know, but it's like, how many affiliates can you own? And right. you know, can you also own a newspaper? And and just like all, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, because when you zero in on a particular industry, um, we know so much more about how competition functions there. So we can get a lot more specific than the antitrust laws, which are pretty vague so that they can apply across the entire economy. Well, and also we can zero in on like, what is it actually we're worried about? Yes. Like the big concern, like the traditional concern with the TV affiliates and the newspapers and all that wasn't really that like the TV would be too expensive or the ad buyers would. Yeah, but that's not, I think that's a little bit of a caricature of antitrust, right? Antitrust isn't just about prices either. No, no, I mean, it, it's true. But I mean, there was a, um, you know, p- people just like have a core concern about like the functioning of uh, the information ecosystem. Right. That's different from like the market for spoons. <laughs> There's a different set of things we worry about. Yes, yes, exactly. And you need to, at some point, like you've got to like, zero in and and try to decide like what you want to do there. Yes. Um, And another thing that I think is important here is there's a wide variety of types of regulation you can do. So um, Matt, I read your slow boring piece about uh, utility style regulation and um, pro competition regulation is pretty different from utility style regulation. And I think a lot of times when we say we need regulation in the tech space, um, people assume it's utility style regulation. Um, but what I think we really need is pro-competition regulation. Right. Because these are like almost the opposite. Uh, well, the, the real opposite is no regulation at all, which is what we <laughs> okay, have right, right. now. But <laughs> I mean, I mean, a utility style regulation, though, is kind of like you've given up on yes. competition, right? Yes, You're exactly. Because, like, you know, you think about it, right? I mean, with like a core utility, like, are you going to have 11 different companies all owning parallel electrical grids? Like, that would be dumb. Right. Um, So you have a regulatory framework that's to say, like, if you live in D.C., you're going to be getting your power from Pepco realistically. So we we need a a market. And and you're saying, like, don't like don't give up. Yep, we can do it. (laughs) I like that. That's a good that's a good note to add on. Uh, But, you know, before I I, I let you go, I should ask, I mean, is there anything uh, we, we missed on on these Google cases? There's a ton more to talk about. I'm sure we could talk about it for another hour, Um, (laughs) but hopefully this is enough to get people interested. Yeah, but I do think that final point is important. It seems really intimidating and we think about um, the difficulty of remedying these violations and and it can seem to many like there's nothing we can do here. Um, But I really think there's a lot of momentum to address these problems. Um, I think this is really a moment when we can um, try to rein in the power of big tech and people should jump in and get involved. The, the wheels are, in fact, already spinning. Yes. There is more to be done uh, if you want to sort of engage with this. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Charlotte Slayman. Um, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janikas. Um, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. When you surround yourself with the best tech, that's an instant level up. So shouldn't you level up in every room of your house? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object 
and cutting-edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings to match your exact preferences, from ambient-colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts.